So how's the book of Philippians going? Have you started reading it? Why don't you raise your hand? Have you been reading? There we go. There we go. Okay, some of you, I'm going to focus this on you today. You see, part of our, our plan, our hope, and our prayer as a pastoral team this year, remember that old saying about uh, give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, teach him to fish, and you feed him for a lifetime. In exactly the same way, we would love you to learn to read God's Word better and more consistently and deeper so that you can mature in your faith as you grow. And what we realized is that many Christians don't have a daily routine of going deeper into His Word, which is why we've started the year with this little journey through the book of Philippians. It's a beautiful book, and uh, there's a reading plan that goes with it. So if you haven't yet got a reading plan, you can pick up one free from uh, the info desk or get it from our church app as well. But there's uh, daily readings that go with it, and we're hoping that you'll study it. And uh, today we're up to chapter 2, which I'm looking forward to. So, Philippians chapter 2. The book of Philippians is a beautiful book. It's uh, really Paul writing to this church that he's planted. He's in jail right now, probably in Rome, and he's writing to the church to encourage them. And as much as he's in jail, he wants to say thank you to them because they'd sent a financial gift that had freed him up to be able to minister. And at the same time, he wanted to encourage them through difficulties and trials and persecution. And legalism was trying to creep back into the church. And he's kind of say to the church, church, stand strong. Don't give up. Persevere. Suffering is normal in the kingdom of God. Don't back down. And so what we're going to look at today, last week we looked at chapter 1, and if you weren't here last week, I'd love you to download it. It's free. It's on the church website or on the app. And, uh, but today we're going to look at chapter 2. <clears throat> and in Philippians chapter 2, it's basically two main sections. The first section of the chapter, Paul continues an argument that he's just introduced. Well, not so much an argument, but a line of thinking where he's telling us why it's so critical, why real worship in our lives it's not just singing songs on Sunday, but it's living a life worthy of the gospel. Jesus paid this amazing price for our salvation, but just because it's free, it doesn't mean it costs nothing. It costs Jesus everything. And in view of his great mercy, how do we then live our lives worthy of the gospel? And so we saw that it kicked off in, in Philippians 1 verse 27. Uh, from last week, it says, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. One of the signs of immaturity in our Christian faith is when we think worship is just singing of songs that you do on Sunday. And really, that's like the tip of the iceberg. It's great, and we've got amazing worship teams, and we love the way they lead us in worship. But that's really the tip of the iceberg of worship. Real worship, we saw taking place this morning, when on a Sunday morning, when most people want to lie in. Here's a bunch of people with their brooms at six in the morning, sweeping water out of a church hall just because they love Jesus. That's worship. What you do tomorrow morning when you go into the factory, into the workplace, and, and you're dealing with your boss, and you're dealing with difficulties and struggles, but you choose to do it in a God-honoring way, that's worship. He says, then whether I come see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. And we're going to see today how he elaborates on what does this lifestyle look like? What does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel. I've got a couple of notes that I want to make along the way. And the first note is this. Did you know this might come as a big theological shock that the Holy Spirit didn't actually inspire the chapter numbers and verse numbers? When the Holy Spirit speaks, He doesn't actually speak in chapter and verse numbers. He just speaks. 
And when Paul wrote the letters to the churches, he didn't write with chapter numbers and verses. Imagine sending off a, I know some of you write these long WhatsApp messages. Imagine putting chapter and verse into your WhatsApp messages. I mean, you wouldn't do that. You would just write. And in the same way, Paul just wrote a letter. The chapters and verses were added later on and are super helpful because it means we can, turn, we can say, please turn to chapter 1, verse 27. That's the positive side. The negative side of the chapter and verses in your Bible is we often break apart God's Word thinking it stands alone. There's a paragraph, there's a paragraph, there's a paragraph. And because it's chapter 2, verse number 1, it means something brand new. And what we're going to see today, for example, is that the chapter starts, therefore. And when it starts, therefore... We've got to ask, well, what's it there for? That's what you do when you see a therefore. And, and what I want us to learn is as we learn to read the Bible in a deeper and more mature way, we actually sometimes have to read backwards a little bit before we get into our today's reading to realize where's the connection. Because if I really want to understand what Paul is saying here, and he started it with therefore or so or whatever, then I have to go back and find out what's he actually linking together. So that's the first part we're going to look at. Second part of the chapter is uh, Paul is simply updating the, the rest of the church on his traveling companions. He's been traveling with uh, Timothy, and he wants to talk about Timothy, who he wants to send back to the church. And Epaphras, he has been with him, and he's going to send him back. I love this verse in Philippians 2 verse 19. It says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a beautiful endorsement? I read that, and that's the little line that jumped out at me, own interests. And I felt the challenge, Lord, whose interests am I really living for? Remember when we read the Bible, we want to read it until something stands out, something we underline. And then as soon as we underline, we say, why did that jump out at me? And I underline that own interest. Whose interests am I really living for? You see, 99% of the people in the world just live for their own interests. What's good for me? How does this benefit me? How does this help me? We live in a humanistic age where surely it's all about me, my rights, my privileges, my, my, my. Sadly, that's never going to lead to a life of joy. Joy always follows love. You've got to serve and love to actually walk in joy. But the other side is, Sometimes we can live for other people's interests, which sounds noble, but we can be enslaved to, I just, I want you to be happy and I want to live for your happiness. And God actually doesn't call us to live for our interests or even other people's interests. It said of Timothy, he lives for the interests of Christ Jesus. I want to ask you today, are you really living for Jesus' interests? What's best for Jesus? How does this advance the gospel we saw last week? But the reason Paul is, is spending this time writing about uh, Timothy is, I suppose the best analogy is that you've been here when we've had uh, one of our apostolic team members from around the country and they've come and ministered. And, and before they get up and minister, I like to introduce them. Because many of the guys I know well, I've traveled with them in South America, we've been to India together, I've ministered in their churches, so I'll get up and introduce, this is a friend of mine, we've been together, I've been to his church, I know his family, I know his love for Jesus, and so Outlook, will you open your hearts and hear what he has to preach? Now the reason I introduce him is because I know him, and I know you, and I want to connect the two together. 
So that's what Paul does. And you'll often read that he, he writes about, as you read, he'll write about some of his traveling companions. The reason he's doing that is to encourage the church to receive them as they come in and minister in the church, that their hearts would be open. So let's get into the focus of today. Paul's linking back to what he just spoke about, living a life worthy of the gospel. Now, Another note I want to make very quickly, and I, and I mentioned it, Philippians 2 verse 1, it says, uh, if we can throw it up on the screen, therefore, if any of you have encouragement from being united in Christ. If we jump quickly to Philippians 2 verse 12, next paragraph it says, therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed. And once again, remember, whenever you see a therefore, we have to ask ourselves, what is it therefore? But I want to make a quick note. It says that in the NRV. It says that in the ESV, but maybe you've got an NLT Bible in front of you or a King James Bible in front of you, and it's not there. So let me take a quick moment. Since we're learning to study God's Word better, which translation is right? Well, I want to take a moment to, to just remind us how translations work. Some translations, or every translation has a philosophy behind how it's translated, now that sounds fancy, but it basically means this. Some versions of the Bible, they want to be as accurate to the words as possible. Some translations of the Bible, they want to be as accurate to the meaning as possible. Does that make sense? Let me give you an example. Let's say we were translators and we were trying to translate the heavenly language of Afrikaans into English. Okay, because for example, the ESV... If some of you love reading the ESV, Quinton, you'll hear preach from the ESV, is a very word accurate. Their philosophy is, let's take each word from Greek or the Greek or the Hebrew words and let's translate them as accurately as possible. What's the English equivalent? If you've got an NLT, they're saying, no, no, what's the meaning? What are they actually trying to communicate and how do we translate that? NRV kind of sits somewhere in the middle. So let's do some translation. If I butcher the heavenly language, Afrikaans folk, please forgive me. Here I go. Soos in die tyd van die voortrekkers, het ek en my swaar, Jan, eis te varke en stink mys honde gaan jaag, met die dubbel loop haal geweer. So there we go, did you get that? Okay, some beautiful classic Afrikaans. So now let's say we were ESV translators. You're trying to translate, let's say this was scripture, we want to be accurate in our translation. How would the ESV translate it? As in the time of the front pullers, me and my heavy, John, went to shoot iron pigs and stink mask dogs with double walk hail guns. Are you understanding what I'm saying? That would be the ESV translation because word for word, it is technically correct. But the meaning is, huh? That's so why sometimes you'll read the ESV and it's like, yo, that's a bit complex. It's complex because the words are accurate, which has left the meaning a little bit confusing. We could go the other way. If it was NLT, we'd say, in the time of the four trekkers, my brother-in-law John and I hunted for bush pigs and I don't even know what that other kind of animal is, with double barrel shotguns. So technically now, the meaning is 100% correct, even though the words aren't 100% correctly translated. Does that make sense? Now, it's important that you understand that because sometimes when you read the Bible, you choose, oh, I like this translation. Well, you need to understand why you like it 
And it's good then to have another translation because sometimes you want to specifically find out what do these words mean. Sometimes you want to focus on what is the meaning. What about, I like reading the message. Sure, paraphrased Bibles, the message or the passion translation, they're not trying to be accurate to the words or even specifically accurate to the meaning. They want to be accurate to the emotion or the spirit of the passage. They were translated maybe something like this. I remember the days of crossing the Drakensberg when my sister's husband, John, and I kept the family alive with just our shotguns, eating wild boar and whatever those stink mice wonder thing are. <laughs> See, here's what I'm saying is now there's beautiful emotion language. That's the heart of the... Are you understanding what I'm saying? Question is, which translation is best? All of them together. As you grow in your maturity in Christ... Most of you will have a favorite translation. I'd read from the NRV because it kind of sits in the middle. But when I want to study deeper the words, I'll pull out the ESV. When I want to go, what is the actual meaning? I'll pull out my NLT. When I want to get the heart of it, I'll read it in the message. Does that make sense? I hope that helps understand why they have different translations and how they can help together. I've spoken to you about uh, the connecting words. So uh, let's dive right in. I actually wanted to focus, and I'll do that for the next 10 minutes, on basically now, in Philippians chapter 2, the first part, what does this life worthy of the gospel actually look like? See, this is Paul's heart. You're going to go through hard times. He's in jail. Persecution's coming. Church, we may be facing persecution into our future. Never know what happens to a country who opposes Israel. So uh, go South Africa. Yikes. So what does it look like when to live a life worthy of the gospel, even in hard times? He mentions three things. Number one, and I'll read this beautiful passage from Philippians 2 verse 1. It says, therefore, if any have encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is a life lived worthy of the gospel? It's a life lived completely humble in your relationships, because in the kingdom of God, you know that it's humility that leads to promotion, to authority, and to honor. I want to ask you this. Have you realized this truth? This is one of those critical truths in the kingdom of God that requires great faith. But if you don't grasp this understanding from the kingdom of God, you could end up spending your life fighting against God instead of God fighting for you. 
See, the kingdom of God is built around the gospel of resurrection. We lay down our lives in faith like Jesus did. And we know Jesus was raised from the dead. So in the same way as we live our lives surrendered before God, we trust that He will raise us up. The Bible says it like this, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And as you mature in your walk with the Lord, we learn and we realize the power in the kingdom of God is learning to humble ourselves, to focus on loving and serving and giving rather than self-promoting and making it all about me. Young pastor went to an older pastor who was mentoring him and said to the older pastor, we under such spiritual attack, it seems that Satan is opposing us every step of the way. The older, wiser pastor, knowing the younger man, grinned and said to him, nope, I don't think so. I, I, think, I think it's God who's opposing you. It's like, no, we're under satanic attack. This is spiritual warfare. And the older man said, no, no, I, I think you're fighting against God because God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. So before we blame the devil for some of the opposition in our lives, remember the Bible is very clear. God hates pride. Pride is self-dependence. Pride is exalting ourselves. Pride is what led to the mess that the world is in. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now we read that through the eyes of Peter. Peter was a proud man. And Peter would have watched this Jesus. He would have heard the stories about this Jesus, who he now believes is the Son of God, yet born in a barn with animals. This Jesus, who, who unfairly is treated by, by people who accuse him, and yet he doesn't like strike them down or call fire from heaven. This Jesus, who, who gets on his knees and he washes the feet of his disciples. This Jesus, who, who dies like a common criminal. And yet this Jesus, who he then saw raised from the dead, who he then saw exalted before their very eyes to the throne of God. And something inside of Peter's heart must have finally broken. As Peter considered his own life, you, you see, Peter was that guy. You know, there was a time when Jesus said, I'm, I'm going to be crucified and all of you are going to abandon me. And Peter says, whoa, 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 no, Jesus. No, 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 no. I can understand why I'm probably the rest of this front row here. They'll probably abandon you, but not me. Jesus, I'm with you to the end. And Peter said, no, tonight, today, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. The Bible talks about when the disciples were walking together, they argued among themselves about who was the greatest. And I bet you I know who won the argument. Probably Peter. Peter was mad one day when James and John with their mother, they go to Jesus and say, Jesus, in your kingdom, can my son sit on your right and left? And Peter was mad because he thought, Don, why didn't I think of that? This was the Peter who knew in his own heart, it was, it was wired to, to self-promote, to be the guy, to be competitive always, I have to be the best. And yet then he fell in love with the kingdom of God. And as he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he, he begins to realize, no, actually, in the kingdom of God, I'm called to love and serve and surrender and yield. And the more I come under Jesus' authority, the more authority Jesus gives me. And now Peter walking down the road and, and his very shadow is healing people because he's walking in such authority and honor because he's humbled himself. That's why he writes those beautiful verses in 1 Peter 5. Verses 5 and 6, In the same way you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but gives favor or grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. 
Have you learned this kingdom truth? A life lived worthy of the gospel is a life of humility. Let's jump to the second one. Carries on in Philippians 2 verses 12 and 13. Therefore, he carries on in the argument. My dear brothers, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Secondly, a life worthy of the gospel keeps walking in obedience to Christ's command to love one another because obedience aligns you with the work of the Holy Spirit. See, to live worthy of the gospel, remember Jesus as he's praying right before his crucifixion and everything inside of him says, God, surely there's another way. But as he prays, he says, but not my will, your will be done. And he surrendered, he yielded himself, say, your will be done. Because what happens when we align our lives, that's called repentance. When we align our lives with the Holy Spirit, it releases the power of the Holy Spirit to work in us and to work through us. I love it. It says, with fear, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is that fear, that reverence for God. This is not a fear that pushes you from his presence, but it's a holy fear that draws you to the beauty of of his presence. It's an amazing story in the early church where, where the church or some of the folk in the church began to lose the wonder of the fear of God. And when you lose that holy sense of the fear of the mightiness of God, you can become familiar with God. You see, we walk in the tension of being able to call God Abba, which means dad, which is the most beautiful, intimate word. We can call God dad and yet... When Isaiah caught one glimpse of God, he fell down and says, woe woe is me. We can come boldly before his throne, but we think of Moses when he came before the bush and the presence of God was there. And God said, don't come near, take off your feet. So we live in this tension of God of intimacy. He's my dad. And yet he's the almighty God of the universe. And in our hearts, we carry this beautiful tension. Thank you, Father, for the intimacy, but never let me lose the wonder and reverence. Ananias and Sapphira, they lost it. They, they were so familiar. We, we kind of get into the, now we can just play the church games. As long as I look amongst everyone else in the community, I'm looking like a good Christian. They sold their land. They took their money. Like, guys, I also want to be generous. My wife and I, we want to give this amazing offering. And they were pretending it was the whole offering, but actually there was only half. They were keeping half of the money to do repairs at home or whatever it was. That was not the point. The point was they began to lie. They began to be hypocritical because they'd lost the reverence and fear for God. And we know how that story ends. If you've read in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, a man named Ananias together with his wife Sapphira, they sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing this? You've not lied just to human beings, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. I love that. There's that sense of God of intimacy, and the fear and reverence. Serve the Lord with fear and trembling because it's God who works in you to will and to act. 
I love uh, what Viv was saying. God transforms us from the inside. Here's how he transforms us. He changes your will. I remember when I gave my life to Jesus 33, whatever, years ago, it was the transformation of desires that changed me. Yesterday, didn't want to go to church, didn't want to read the Bible, thought all Christians are hypocrites, church is a waste of time. One day later, now I really want to get to know the God of the Bible. I, I want to be with God's people. I went to church every meeting and through the week, and, and there was a complete change. I want to live a holy life, and soon I want to give my life to ministry one day. What happened? What happened was He works in you to will and to act. When our one desire becomes more intimacy with Jesus, all of our desires are fulfilled. Let me say that again. When our one desire is, Jesus, I want more of you, then all of our desires are fulfilled in Him. See, the Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord, Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. That's what it's talking about. A life lived worthy of God is a life where our one desire becomes more of Him. And when He's our one desire, He fulfills all our desires. Let me land with the last one. A life lived worthy of the gospel, this is going to be your favorite one, is a life where we stop arguing and complaining because they just rob our lives of the testimony of purity. Philippians 2 verse 14, it says, do everything. The Greek word, remember we're studying words today, the, the Greek word that's used here for everything, it basically means everything. Do everything without grumbling. Grumbling basically means grumbling. It means complaining and whining and arguing. Arguing means arguing when you have to be right because it's your opinion that matters most so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, then you will shine among them, them, the unsaved, those who persecute, those who stand against, those unbelievers, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. It's almost like the brightness of your shine. Remember we called to be the, the salt of the earth, the light of the world. The brighter we shine is the less we grumble and complain. But it's quite hard, isn't it? I've told you my story before about um, shopping on a Monday for groceries. You know that feeling when you get to the till finally and then they close the till as you get there? I mean, come on. And there's like only two tills open for all these customers because it's tea time. I mean, hello. And you wait in line, you wait in line, you wait in line, please, Holy Spirit, help me be patient, patient, patient. You get there, and the person in front of you wants to pay their TV license at the grocery store in 50 cent coins. And you get there, and finally, finally, now you scan your stuff and it's scanned wrong. And now you feel like a righteous indignation about telling the poor lady at the till how the shop should be run, how much better it would be if you were the leader in this particular shop. And once you've vocalized it all, she says, goodbye, pastor, I'll see you on Sunday. 
oh dear God. If you're here today, I'm, I'm apologizing up front. See, we never know. We call to shine, not on a church on Sunday. We call to shine like stars in the universe all the time. Everyone you speak to is going to grumble and complain. That's what you do. You grumble and complain about how busy you are. You grumble and complain about load shedding, about the country, about this, that. It's just the default language, except for believers in Jesus. Because it says, do everything without arguing and complaining. Imagine, church, imagine. You see, let me leave you with this challenge. When Paul said, live a life worthy of the gospel, it was an individual decision that we've got to make. Lord, I want to live my life worthy. It's an individual decision, but it has corporate consequences. What I mean by that is we've got to decide individually, but it affects all of us. And Paul said this, because if you, speaking about us, if we live worthy of the gospel, then those who oppose you will be confronted by this fact. God is real. You're going to be saved. We're going to be destroyed. That's what it says. You see, when the world sees a community that can live in harmony, honoring, loving, serving, caring, it takes the world by storm. And Paul is saying, church, I want you to live worthy of the gospel. Because when we get it right at a community level, it impacts the society in which we live. So I want you to stand with me, if you don't mind. And as you stand, I want to ask you to make it as a personal decision. What does it mean to live worthy of the gospel? Number one, it means humble at all times to all people because you have the faith that God can and will promote if we just love and serve. It means we keep the intimate relationship with God our Father, but we never forget that He's the God of the universe who deserves all of our obedience. It means that we repent of arguing and complaining and settle once for all that God is with us and focus rather on reflecting His glory. Heavenly Father, as we stand in your presence this morning, thank you, Heavenly Father, that actually we have it so easy in our nation. And yet, Father, we don't want to become complacent. Father, we don't want to become familiar with your glory. Father, we want the passion for Jesus to burn brighter and brighter. Father, we don't want to be seduced into thinking worship is singing songs on Sundays. We want to worship you by living lives worthy of the gospel. Friends, maybe right now you've realized you haven't been living humbly before God. You've been living focused on yourself, self-interest, what's good for me, how do I promote myself? God says live worthy of the gospel. Maybe you've been living, but instead of being obedient, you've been following your own ways. It's God who works in you to will and to act. When he becomes our one desire, he fulfills all our desires. Or maybe thirdly, you're convicted by the fact that your natural language is one of complaining or arguing. Lord, you've called us to shine. Heavenly Father, I pray for your grace right now. Even in the heat, even in the strut, whatever, Lord, help us to shine like stars in the universe. Thank you so much for your incredible grace. Friends, just with your eyes closed for a moment, 
If you're one of those visitors or maybe you're new to the church, maybe you've never made a commitment to this Jesus. Live a life worthy of the gospel. The gospel, the good news, Jesus came out of love for his father and love for you and I, paid the ultimate price so that we could have a relationship with his father. If you've never had your sins forgiven and been reunited, connected with God, today is the day. We're gonna be praying for some folk right now. If you're sick and need prayer for your body, we're gonna be praying for people right now. The elders are here. If you need encouragement or counseling, we'd love to spend some time with you. Marlies, you've got a word for us. Morning, everyone. Um, I just found God revealed that there's someone, a lady struggling with fluid retention, water retention, especially in your hands, where you're struggling with your, to get your rings on or off. Here we go. God reveals so that he can heal. If that's you, we're going to be praying for you as well. Father, thank you that you are the God of salvation. You are the God of healing. And Father, we truly give you all the glory and honor and praise. Thank you for your people, Lord. Thank you for what you're doing in our hearts and our lives. We give you the glory in Jesus' name. And God's people say, May the Lord bless you. Thanks for persevering through the heat this morning. We do have our tithes and offering boxes at the door if you want to make your way there. New folk, if you want to meet us at the Hello Corner just inside, I think there's some coffee available. God bless. Have a great rest of the day. See you on Thursday. Amen.